Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to season two of the Umayyad Caliphate, presented by Islamic History Exclusive. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail, and this is episode 2 11. Before we get into the episode, a brief recap of where we are so far. Qutayba ibn Muslim is making good progress in Bukhara and Central Asia. And Hajjaj ibn Yusuf wants to expand his territory even further east and looks towards the Indus Valley. And with that, let's begin our discussion on the Umayyad conquest of Sindh. Now, a brief disclaimer. There is not much verified information regarding the Umayyad conquest of Sindh. Much of what we are discussing today actually comes from a manuscript called Chachnam. Chachnam is a Persian text written sometime around the 1300 CE. The Chachnam purports it claims to be a translation of an older Arabic document written in the 8th century when these events, that is the Umayyad conquest of Sindh, actually happened. The Chachnam describes Muhammad ibn al-Qasim's conquest of Sindh, that, that is the Indus Valley. Interestingly, most modern scholars do not accept this claim. They do not believe the Chachnam is actually a translation of an older document, of an older Arabic document. Instead, most modern scholars believe it is a collection of stories passed down over the centuries about Muhammad ibn al-Qasim's conquest of Sindh. So, with all that being said, I'm trying to tell you that we can't really be certain that the details I'm going through, I'm going to tell you, are true. But, hopefully, inshallah, the overall story is fairly accurate. Either way, this is really all we have to go on. There's no other documentation existing or that we have um, any awareness of right now that discuss the Arab conquest of Sindh. So we'll have to take this as best as we can. So I used a summary of Chachnam to discuss, to uh, prepare this episode, but I also used another book called Futuhul Buldan, written by Sheikh Al-Baladuri. And Futuhul Buldan does provide a very brief description of the conquest of Sindh, but it mostly corroborates what is in Chachnam. Generally, not the details, but the general sequence of events, it generally corroborates that. So hopefully this is a fairly accurate story. But once again, some of this we may have to take with a grain of salt and Allah knows best. All right, let's start off with some terminology. I want to quickly discuss the difference between Sindh and Hind. Sindh is a specific region. It is the lower Indus River Basin in what is now modern-day Pakistan. Before the arrival of Alexander the Great, this region, the Indus River in particular, was called Sindus. And I hope I'm saying that correctly. Sindus. But the Greeks pronounced Sindus as Indus, and over time, this land became known as India, from Indus, obviously. The people of this region were called Hindus, which means people of the Indus Valley. 
and the Indus Valley was called Hindustan in Urdu and in Persian. And in Arabic, as we know, the Arabic word for the Indian subcontinent is Hind or Al-Hind. So that's the difference between Sind and Hind. Now let's talk about some geography. We have the terminology, now onto geography. Now to the west of Sind is a region known as Balochistan. Balochistan is divided between two modern countries, Iran and Pakistan. In the western part of Iran is the modern province called Sistan and Baluchistan. That's really what it is. It's a two-word province, just like Trinidad and Tobago and Bosnia and Herzegovina. In Iran, the province is called Sistan and Baluchistan. So that's part of Baluchistan, the region of Baluchistan. The other part of the region of Balochistan is the Pakistani province of Balochistan. Regardless of which country it's in, this region generally, even today, is very poor and very desolate. Sistan and Balochistan in Iran is the poorest province in Iran, and Balochistan, from what I've read, is also the poorest province in Pakistan. The Balochistan region is a desert area. It's very dry, it's very mountainous, with very little vegetation and very little agriculture. So that's Balochistan. So if you're coming from the Middle East, you're going to have to go through Iran. You're going to have to go through this region of Balochistan. So that's first. Once you go through Balochistan, we're traveling east now from the Middle East. Once you go through Balochistan, you now get to the region of Sindh, which is once again the southern Indus Valley region. So you go from Balochistan into Sindh. And Sindh follows the course of the Indus River and roughly forms the shape of, a, of the letter S. This region that's closest to the river, this, the floodplain, is traditionally known as Kacha, which means unbuilt. This floodplain region around the uh, Indus River this region is very muddy, it's covered in bushes and forests, and it is perfect for hiding bandits and highway robbers even today. However, today it does contain a large region for growing cotton, and it is covered in mangrove forests and home to several species of fish and birds, and even the Indus dolphin, which is a very odd-looking creature if you want to take a look at it. Alright, so if you keep going east, you leave Sindh, and you keep going east, you now come to the region called Thar. Thar is named after the Thar Desert, most of which is in India, but a small portion is in modern Pakistan. And just like Balochistan, this region, the Thar Desert, is dry and hot, but unlike Balochistan, Thar is very flat. Alright, so now we got terminology. We got geography. Let's get into the details of the Sindh kingdom that existed before the Umayyads arrived. This Sindh kingdom was once part of the Rai dynasty. The Rai dynasty lasted about 150 years. At the time of the arrival of the Umayyads, the current king of this region was a man named Dahir, but Dahir was not part of the Rai dynasty. Instead, Dahir was the son of a Brahmin or a priest named Chach. Dahir's father, the former priest Chach, married the widow of the last ruler of the Rai dynasty. 
This, of course, brings up the question, how did a priest marry a queen? Well, from what little I read, and I didn't get too deep into it, I'm not going to get too deep into it now either because it is outside the scope of our story. But from what I've read, there was lots of intrigue, backstabbing, maybe some murder, and romance. But once again, who knows how much of this is true, and either way, it doesn't really impact our story. Just understand that because of these events, many people in the region kind of believe that Chach and his son, the current King Dahir, were usurpers of the throne. And maybe that led to their quick downfall and their quick defeat by the Umayyads. So the previous king, Chach, he continued to expand his new kingdom all the way to the borders of modern Kashmir, and when he died, his son Dahir became the king. Dahir became king in 695 CE. And this corresponds roughly to the year 75 AH. And to give you some perspective, that was the same year that Hajjaj ibn Yusuf became governor of Iraq. So in the previous season, we've been talking about Hajjaj ibn Yusuf taking over Iraq. This guy Dahir was becoming king of Sindh. By the time Dahir became king, however... It seemed as if the area that was, that was under his effective control had shrunk a whole lot from what his father ruled. He no longer controlled territory going all the way up to Kashmir. He only controlled the lower Indus Valley region. Dahir's capital was Brahmanabad, located where the city of Shaddadpur is today in southern Pakistan. There were other major cities. One of them was Dabul, which is a port city near the, near the Indus River Delta. And we'll talk about that in a few moments, inshallah. Another city that was very important in the region was a city called Aurora, about 120 miles north of Brahmanabad. Today it is known as Rori in Sindh province of Pakistan. And forgive me if my pronunciation is off. These words are new to me, so I'm doing the best I can here. All right. The primary religion at this time seems to have been Buddhism rather than Hinduism. The Arabs called all of the temples and idols they encountered during this conquest and invasion of sin, they call all of these things Bud, which leads to the belief that Buddhism was the primary religion in this region rather than Hinduism. In fact, some of the monks who negotiated with the Umayyad forces were called Samana. And that term Samana is linked to Buddhism and Jainism and not so much to Hinduism. Many people in the region also seem to have practiced Brahmanism. And Brahmanism, just like Hinduism, it is an offshoot of the Vedic religion. And Brahmanism was probably practiced by the rulers of Sindh. The Vedic religion was like the parent of a lot of these religions, especially Hinduism. And it's probably more than what I can get into right now. But just understand that the two religions that people mostly practice, at least from my reading, seems to have been Buddhism and Brahmanism. Now let's get into the history of the Muslim incursion into the Indus Valley, into Sindh, and it actually started well before Hajjaj ibn Yusuf. The first Muslim expeditions to the Indian subcontinent actually came during the era of the righteous caliphs. There is an episode during the Khilafat of Omar ibn Khattab in the year 15 AH, 
the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam died in 10 AH. We're talking about five years after the Prophet. Omar's governor of Bahrain and Oman sent an army across the Arabian Sea to a city called Tina near modern-day Mumbai. However, when Omar found out, he warned the governor against doing that again and called the mission back. Omar had a certain feeling about expanding too quickly. And you'll have to go back to my earlier episodes in the Islamic History Podcast to get an idea about that. Next, we have another expedition sent during the time of Uthman ibn Affan. Uthman sent an expedition on a scouting mission to India. The mission returned back with three descriptions of India, or the part of India that they saw. They said the water was scanty, the dates were inferior, and the robbers were bold. So that kind of discouraged Uthman from sending any further expeditions into India. But the Muslims weren't done just yet. Uthman's successor, Ali ibn Abi Talib, also sent an expedition to India in the year 38 AH. This expedition was fairly successful, bringing back lots of plunder and captives. However, the leader of the expedition was killed in 42 AH. And as you know, Ali was consumed with lots of other things happening in Iraq and and Assyria and Medina, so he really couldn't focus on doing too much stuff in India at this time. Then we go on to the era of Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan. Muawiyah actually sent multiple expeditions to this region. The first one he sent was actually our old friend Muhalab ibn Abi Sufra. He sent Muhalab to raid what an area that is now Pakistan in the year 44 AH. Muhalab's raid did not accomplish much, and so Muawiyah sent another general a little bit after that, a man named Abdullah ibn Sawar, into this frontier region of, of India. Abdullah ibn Sawar experienced some success, but he was also eventually killed fighting in India, so that didn't go too well either. Muawiyah sent yet another expedition, this time led by a man named Sinan ibn Salama, sent him and Sinan wound up going to Makran, which is along the Balochistan coast. Remember, Balochistan is that desert and uh, desolate area we mentioned between Iran and Pakistan. Sinan ibn Salama captured Makran. He established a military post. He then went on to capture Kuzdar, which is also in modern Pakistan, but he didn't he couldn't hold that too long because the locals rebelled against him. Sinan was wasn't able to capitalize on these gains and he managed to hold on to Makran, but he was not able to go much further than that. And Makran remained like an outpost in this frontier region for hopefully future Arab conquests. Maawiyah sent a final expedition, this one left from uh, Sijistan in Iran going towards India. It first stopped in Kandahar in Afghanistan and then eventually recaptured Kuzdar for Maawiyah. And that was kind of the last expedition during the early Umayyad Khilafat. As we well know, after Maawiyah's death, the second fitna happened with, um, with the Battle of Karbala and then Muawiyah's son, Yazid ibn Muawiyah, and the whole Ibn Zubair series and all that stuff. And so there was really wasn't much progress into India after that. And now we get to the time of Hajjaj ibn Yusuf. 
So Hajjaj ibn Yusuf, as you well know, in 75 AH, he takes over in Iraq, has lots of uh, problems consolidating his power in Iraq and regions beyond that, particularly in Khorasan. But he eventually established his own governor over that lone outpost way out there in Balochistan, that lone outpost that was conquered during the time of Muawiyah, the city of Makran. It's not really a city. It's more like an outpost. That's really it's just an outpost, uh, a very marking the very furthest region of Umayyad authority, and calling it a city is being very, very generous. It's really it was really just an outpost where Umayyad soldiers could go and hopefully use it as a springboard to further conquests and send. And that is ex- exactly what happened, which we will get to soon, inshallah. So during the time of Hajjaj ibn Yusuf, when he was the governor of Iraq, which really included half of Asia by this time, okay, maybe a third of Asia, probably going a bit too far, but included a whole bunch of Asia at this time, the king of Sri Lanka sent a ship laden with gifts for Hajjaj ibn Yusuf. Amongst the gifts within this ship were two Arab Muslim women. These two women had been born in Sri Lanka, but their fathers who lived in Sri Lanka had died. The king of Sri Lanka was sending these young women back to Hajjaj ibn Yusuf, hoping to perhaps gain favor with Hajjaj ibn Yusuf, who was now a very, very powerful man. However, the ship carrying the women and the gifts for Hajjaj was attacked by pirates from Daibul. That was that port city we mentioned earlier, that ancient port near Karachi, near what is now modern-day Karachi in Pakistan. Hajjaj ibn Yusuf blamed the attack on the king of Sindh, that is, that man Dahir, who was ruling over the Sindh region at this time. Well, King Dahir refused to accept responsibility. He said he had no control over these pirates who operated outside of his authority. Well, Hajjaj ibn Yusuf, we know what kind of man he is. He was not going to accept no for an answer. And he sent two expeditions to Daibul to exact revenge. But both of these expeditions failed. But once again, we know Hajjaj and he's not going to give up after just two failures. He tried a third time, this time appointing a young man named Muhammad ibn al-Qasim al-Thakafi. He appointed Muhammad ibn al-Qasim to attack Sindh around 90 AH. He also ordered Muhammad ibn al-Qasim to take command of the outpost in Makran. So those were his two missions, become the new governor or commander of Makran, that lone Umayyad outpost in the middle of Balochistan, and then from there, springboard and begin the conquest of Sindh and exact revenge on Daibul for allowing those pirates to destroy that ship. Muhammad ibn al-Qasim was only about 17 years old at this time. He was a cousin, a relative of Hajjaj ibn Yusuf. Muhammad ibn al-Qasim's father, al-Qasim, was a first cousin to Hajjaj ibn Yusuf. Even though the young man was only 17 years old, he was already a military commander for Hajjaj in the city of Fars, which is in Persia. 
So Muhammad ibn Qasim, he gathered, he gathered his forces in Fars and went west towards Ray and then on to Shiraz. Both of these are cities in Persia. Hajjaj ibn Yusuf supplemented Muhammad ibn Qasim's forces with an additional 6,000 Syrian troops. And with that, Muhammad ibn Qasim began his march to India. Now let's discuss some of the reasons why Hajjaj ibn Yusuf wanted to capture Sindh. Now we already mentioned that he wanted to exact revenge for that ship being attacked by the pirates. However, Hajjaj's grand plan, according to some, some theories, Hajjaj's grand plan might have been to eventually invade China. We know that his armies were already operating in Khorasan, which is in Central Asia, under the command of Qutayba ibn Muslim. That we just, we've been discussing that for the past couple of episodes now. Perhaps, perhaps Hajjaj's thinking was that if he could conquer Sindh, then he could initiate or begin a two-pronged attack into China. He could have uh, Qutayba ibn Muslim lead his armies from Uzbekistan into China and then also have his armies led by Muhammad ibn Qasim from Sindh move north into China. Now, I'm not exactly sure how accurate this theory is. The Umayyads did already control Afghanistan, and if they really wanted to attack China, they probably could have launched an invasion from there. However, we have to understand that Qutayba ibn Muslim was operating in Bukhara at this time, and Bukhara was about a thousand miles from China, so it would have taken a long time. And at the same time, the uh, Umayyads were still in the process of consolidating their control in Khorasan. As I've tried to allude to in the past or in previous episodes, the Umayyads did not really have a firm grasp on Khorasan just yet. So maybe his thinking was that if he lived long enough, he could consolidate authority in uh, Khorasan, and maybe if he got lucky and captured Sindh, and at this time the Arabs were pretty much running over everybody, so no reason for him not to think that he couldn't do this. You know, maybe he thought he could try and do this pincer move into China. Alano's best if he really wanted to do that. There is another theory that Hajjaj wanted to uh, get his hands on a group of Khawadij, a group of rebels that had taken refuge in Sindh. Hajjaj had demanded the local ruler, might have been Dahir for all we know, he demanded the local ruler to turn these Khawadij over, the ruler refused, and that is what initiated Hajjaj ibn Yusuf's a conquest of Sindh. Well, Alano's best will really happen. I'm more or less along the lines that the pirate theory is what initiated the conquest, and also the fact I think just Hajjaj ibn Yusuf wanted more territory. I think he just wanted to expand his territory. That's probably the main thing he may have used islam as a as a reason or an additional reason for it maybe some motivation there but i think the man just wanted to extend his territory all right moving on so we get to muhammad ibn al-qasim and his his journey into balochistan and then into sindh first of all muhammad ibn al-qasim had a difficult time just getting to makran as we mentioned makran was in the middle of Balochistan. It was in the middle of this very desolate, desert, difficult, hot area. It was the lone outpost of the Umayyads, surrounded by a whole bunch of useless, unconquered territory. 
it was very far from the center of Muslim land, so it was very difficult to supply and manage. Balochistan is a very inhospitable region, as we've gone over, mostly desert, very little vegetation. In fact, I found a line of poetry that said, if there are many of you, you'll starve to death. And if there are a few of you, you'll be overran. This is basically an a description of how difficult life is in Balochistan or trying to come into Balochistan. So Muhammad ibn al-Qasim, as he came into Balochistan on his way to Sindh, he had to defend against raids. He had to try to maintain the morale of his soldiers who kept defecting and trying to run back to the Middle East. It was a very difficult time. When he finally arrived in Makran, the outpost, the last Umayyad outpost in Sindh, he immediately began attacking some of the cities in the region. First, he attacked the city of Panjgur. Hope I got that correct. Panjgur is about 225 miles northwest of Karachi. And then from there, he went and attacked the city of Bela, which is about 100 miles northwest of Karachi. Now that he has arrived in Makran, Muhammad ibn Qasim takes over as the commander of Makran and the former governor of Makran, the man who he displaced, joined forces with Muhammad ibn Qasim and they continued their expedition on into Sindh. This former governor, however, died while fighting in Sindh. Around the end of the year 92 AH, which corresponds to roughly 711 CE, Muhammad ibn Qasim reached the gates of Daybul. Remember, this was that port city that was located in Sindh, that where the pirates had initially launched from and attacked those ships. The port city, uh, Daybul, was ruled by one of King Dahir's governors, and it also contained a large stupa. A stupa is a Buddhist sanctuary. Well, Ibn al-Qasim's troops, they immediately began besieging the city. They surrounded the city. They had this gigantic catapult that was nicknamed the Bride. And this catapult started launching large boulders into Daibul. This catapult called the Bride was supposedly so large, it required 500 men to operate it. Now, before Muhammad ibn al-Qasim and his forces had left Iraq, Hajjaj ibn Yusuf had advised them to target this stupa. Evidently, this stupa was known to the Muslims even before they left Iraq, probably because it had a, a large red flag on top of it, kind of like a signal of, here I am, come get me if you want me, something like that. Well, Hajjaj ibn Yusuf, he heard about this stupa and this large flag. He told his men to target it once they arrived at Daybul. The thinking was that if they could knock that flag down, then the enemy's morale would be drained. Well, the Umayyads eventually knocked the flag down, and sure enough, after several months, the city's defenders began to lose hope. With the flag knocked down and the stupa uh, heavily damaged, the Umayyad soldiers began raising ladders to scale the walls of the city, and they proceeded to storm the city, and that was it for Daybul. The Umayyads pillaged the city for three days straight. According to the Chachnam, this resulted in a massacre and several deaths. The city's governor fled, and all of the Buddhist monks within the city were executed. So this was the first secure conquest of a true city 
by the Arabs in the Indian subcontinent. That is the fall of Debul. Debul fell in early 93 AH. Once he took control, Muhammad ibn al-Qasim immediately ordered the construction of a masjid, and he also ordered the construction of new settlements for 4,000 Muslims to arrive. Well, the primary objective of Hajjaj ibn Yusuf had been reached. As we mentioned, he initially wanted to punish the city for the pirates that had attacked that ship curing the Muslim women. But... As I mentioned, I really believe Hajjaj ibn Yusuf's primary desire was to capture more territory. So once he had Daybul under his control, Hajjaj ibn Yusuf ordered his cousin Muhammad ibn al-Qasim to continue his conquest and he set about conquering all of Sindh. And the Umayyad armies went out and just began taking territory. After Daybul, Muhammad ibn al-Qasim led his troops to Niron, which is near modern-day Hyderabad. The Buddhist monks in this city surrendered peacefully and agreed to pay tribute. After that victory, the Umayyad army split in two and went into two different directions. Muhammad ibn al-Qasim led one faction of the army to Sehwan, which is about 70 miles north of Hyderabad. Sehwan also fell to the Umayyads. His second in command, a man named Muhammad ibn Mus'ab ibn Abdurrahman, he led the other faction of the Umayyad army towards Sadusan. I'm not really sure where Sadusan was, uh, but I believe it's somewhere along the banks of the Indus River. Whatever the case may be, Sadusan ultimately surrendered peacefully to the Umayyads and also agreed to pay tribute. From this city as well, the Umayyads were able to recruit 4,000 jats into the Muslim forces. I don't know if they accepted Islam or if they just joined the Muslim armies. Now, jats, I had to do some research on this. Jats are like peasants and traditional uh, animal herders. It seems as if they're like a lower class of society. Someone who's familiar with it may want to let me know what's going on with that. But nonetheless, the Muslims uh, recruited 4,000 jats into their, for into their forces so now, Muhammad ibn al-Qasim has kind of taken control of the region, but not fully. He still has to fight the king. He still has to get, capture the king's uh, capital, Brahmanabad. And so, Muhammad ibn al-Qasim orders a bridge of boats in order to cross the Indus River and then get to the other side in order to face King Dahir, the king of Sindh. And Dahir had gathered a large army for this final showdown between him and the Umayyad forces led by Muhammad ibn al-Qasim. We will discuss this final showdown later on in the season. I'm not sure when, but it's going to be later. We have to go back to the Middle East in order for the story to make sense. We have to go back to the Middle East and we're going to go back to Iraq and see what's happening with Yazid ibn Muhallab, the former deposed governor of Khorasan and his now arch-rival Hajjaj ibn Yusuf. But that's in the next episode. Until then, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.